Welcome to Unlocking the Truth, a podcast where we discover God's truth for ourselves by studying His Word in order to lead us to a personal transformational relationship with God. This podcast series called Philippians, How to Have Joy, was recorded from September to October of 2021, a sermon series by Preset Ministries National Director Mark Sheldrake to a local Ontario church. Now let us listen to Mark's message as he takes us into the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians where through scripture we can discover how to have joy. Let's pray together. Father God, we take this uh, moment now and we just pause and we think about the words that we just sang that uh, we're calling on your Holy Spirit to speak to us, uh, not only through the words of the songs we sing and the worship that we give to you, but through your word. And so, Lord, I pray that as we uh, walk through Philippians again, that your spirit would be working within us. Lord, that the things that we Uh, brought through the doors of this church this morning, that they would be left there in the moment that we take the time to to hear from you, that we not be distracted by the external things, but solely focusing on the things that we need to do to transform our heart. So Lord, I pray now that as we open your word, uh, your very voice, that you would speak now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so uh, this week we're going to look at some more uh, of what can steal joy uh, and how we can have joy. All right, so we're going to dig into Philippians chapter 3, and uh, we're not going to get past the first few verses here again, just before we pause and we look at what um, the text is telling us. So let's just start with the first word, all right? So the first word, and, and if it, hopefully it's the same in the ESV as it is the New American Standard, but that first word that Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1, is the word, finally. And so sometimes you're thinking to yourself, oh, conversation's almost over when we see the word, finally. However, Paul is going to go on for about 53 more verses before he actually comes to the conclusion of his letter. So if you look at chapter 4, verse 8, look what the word says there in chapter 4, verse 8. Do you see it? Yell it out if you see it. What is it? Wait a minute. Oh my goodness, you folks are so good. All right. So uh, chapter 4, verse 8, he says, finally again. So this is not a finally uh, of me, him wrapping up the letter, uh, finally will be coming way over in chapter 4 to wrap up. But Paul often uses the word finally to, to move in his letters from focusing on something like doctrine into how to live out the word of God. In this case, uh, finally, uh, it is assumed maybe that Paul is starting to wrap up some of the focuses on unity. And so uh, three weeks we spent in unity, and here he's going to continue that focus, and look what he says. Finally, my brethren, rejoice 
in the Lord. All right, this is the first time in the letter of Philippians that Paul now says, rejoice in the Lord. He has not stated that before. He has stated rejoice and joy, but now this is the first time he says rejoice in the Lord. So you have to kind of switch on your memory to think back to when we first started this Philippians series, and I gave you a couple of uh, things about joy and how we can have joy. And that first joy that I gave you was that you have joy because your position in Jesus Christ. All right, that's where this all comes from. All right, so the joy in position in Christ is what he's now talking about and we'll focus on all the way down to verse 11, all right? So if you are a note taker, all right, there's going to be, because I am a precept guy, precept guys write lists. We're going to write a couple of lists as we go through the text this morning. All right, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things, again, is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. All right, so Paul, Paul's telling us that in this, uh, you need to rejoice in your position in Christ. All right, that's the first thing, and that he doesn't mind repeating himself all the way through uh, in what he is saying. Why? It's no trouble for him to repeat it. He finds joy in writing about it, but also the very fact that it is a protection for you because you are constantly being reminded of these truths in the scripture. Just like God in his word, who loves to repeat himself, Paul too is repeating himself as a reminder of our position in Christ. Now, look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, and beware of the false circumcision. All right, so we're going to spend a few minutes in this verse, and at the rate we're going, it could be a while uh, before we get to the end. All right, so I want to take you back to Philippians chapter, um, chapter 2, okay? So in, or Philippians chapter 1, sorry. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 to 29. Because right here in the beginning where he says, beware of dogs, uh, we're going to see... Uh, something very important that's going to come out of the text about these people that he's talking about. But look at chapter 1, verse 27. He says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel." All right, so right in there, we're back to this whole subject of unity. This is what you need to pay attention to. Stand firm together and strive for the gospel. Now look at verse 28. In no way should you be alarmed by your opponents. All right, so did you see way back in chapter 1, Paul is already saying, don't be alarmed by those who oppose what you are doing for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, this is a sign of destruction for them, but salvation for you. 
and that too from God. So Paul's now going to pick up in these first 11 verses on these opponents. All right, so let's again look at these opponents. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers and beware of the false circumcision. So we we need to spend some time looking at these verses first and foremost. And I was saying this morning and I was saying this week, I said, oh, great, I get to talk about dogs. (laughs) I love dogs. Do you sense the sarcasm coming out of my voice right now? Uh, Right, here's what Paul is saying. Okay, a couple things. Beware of dogs. Uh, Gentiles were referred to as dogs by the Jews in scriptures. Also, dogs, uh, wait for it. And I know, folks, I know some of you have wonderful Instagrams with your dogs. and And right here, guys, Paul's using dogs. Because dogs are known to be filthy animals that uh, really uh, were not well known during that time. He's saying, beware of dogs, just as the Jews called the Gentiles dirty dogs. Paul's now using the analogy of filthy, dirty dogs. Uh, The scraps are good for the dogs. Uh, He's using this to describe the Jews. Oh, but how can you not love dogs? They're they're man's best friend. Um, Folks, not all dogs, but some dogs, they stink. (laughs) They're dirty. I'll be quite honest with you. I know how a cat cleans himself, but I have no idea how a dog gets clean. Does, it, does it somebody like spray it with a hose and, and clean it down? I don't know. But this is the reality that, you know, my daughter would desperately want a dog, but I feel like in my world that I'm living in right now, that if we got a dog for her, she'll go off to university and leave that dog at my house, and then I have to take care of it, and I just do not want to deal with a dog. I do not want to buy Ziploc bags for a dog. You know what I'm saying? Dogs are dirty. All right, so this is what Paul is saying is right off the bat, he's going to this Gentile group of people, this, this people, this place in Philippi, which did not have many Jews, but over the time, more and more Jews would have come, and he uses the very words of the Jews against the Gentiles to come back on them, and he says, beware of those dogs, those dirty, those filthy people. Look what he says. He says, also beware of the evil workers and beware of the false circumcision. So he is drawing off this that one of the opponents that this church needs to pay attention to are those who are Jews or claim to be the rights of the Jews and claim to be the true religious people of the world and to pay attention to them and not be sucked into the legalism that comes with the Jewish people. Uh, This false circumcision, we want to look at this for a moment too, because 
Uh, we'll, we'll look further at what Paul says about circumcision in a moment. But this false circumcision that comes through the text is a very sarcastic term that Paul is using within the words. And, okay, and so he, he's not really using the word circumcision as though he would be referencing the Jews, but he's using a different word in the Greek, and this Greek word is to mutilate. All right, it is literally to mutilate oneself for the purpose of religion. Write this text down. Uh, you can look it up this week on your own, but it is uh, 1 Kings 18, verse 28. And this is concerning Elijah and the prophets of Baal and how the prophets of Baal were mutilating themselves and cutting themselves to bring their God into action. So this mutilation uh, also referred to in Galatians chapter 5 verse 12. The, these people of the false circumcision was that Paul was basically saying that there were people who were sarcastically castrating themselves for their religion. Uh, the idea of this castration is in sole purpose of false worship to God, a false God. So, so do you see what he's saying? He says, you need to be aware that there are people in your church, they're dogs, they're dirty, they're filthy, they're, they're doing evil things, and they're doing things with the wrong intent. He then says, uh, for we are the true circumcision. Those who worship in the spirit of God and the glory in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. All right, so there's, there's a couple things that we're going to look at, but I want to quickly uh, draw your attention to the, the, the verses here, and it says that they have no confidence in the flesh. So what we're going to be looking at this whole time as we work through these scriptures are the outward things that might show righteousness versus the inward change that shows true righteousness. All right, so I've got to tell you that uh, Jessica and I, we went to uh, Israel, all right? And when we were in Israel, uh, before we even got there, I had gone previous times and I brought with me in my uh, carry-on gravel. You know, what would you use gravel for when you're flying to Israel? Well, Take a couple of those and out you go and you sleep the whole flight because I have to wake up every time I am in Israel. I have to get off that plane and I have to teach immediately after flying all night at Caesarea um, by the sea. All right, so I have to get up and I have to be ready to teach the word of God. So I'm like, Jessica, here's the thing. What you need to do is you need to take some gravel. You'll sleep the whole night. You'll wake up in the morning. You'll be refreshed. All those people on the Israel tour, they'll be completely exhausted. But you'll be ready to go. And she says, no, I, I, I don't think I need it. I'll be able to sleep fine. So we're on the plane. And we are on the plane because we are heading over at the same time as Passover. And our plane is filled with Orthodox Jewish families. 
And so we are sitting on this plane and we are watching these men go through all of these religious acts, all of these things that they need to do on a regular basis by the law so that they can still be considered righteous before God. And, and we would see these young men and they would take these leather straps and they call, they're called phylacteries and they would tie them seven times around their arm and they would tie them so tight and then they would put a little box on the top of their head and they would tie that on tight. And in the little box, there are five commands and on their arm, there are two command, three commands, I believe, that are standing there. And all of these commands and all here is all based on Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 6, verses 4 to 9, in which God tells them to bind them on the words of his law on their arms and on their heads. And the purpose is that they would be able to hold in those truths of God's word. But then when they untie those things, when they take them all off on their arms, do you know what you can see? All of the marks of the leather that was so tightened around their arm. And this would be an outward showing of the fact that they were obedient to the law. And you see, what Paul is going to come through in this passage, he's going to show us all of these things that all of these Jewish men were doing as outward actions to show their righteousness. And then he's going to show us as believers what we really need to do and how we really receive righteousness in the eyes of God. So I'm telling you that uh, by the time we got off that plane in Tel Aviv, uh, Jessica's eyes were barely open because she watched every action of these men all night long. I woke up so refreshed. I was like, yeah, I'm ready to go. My poor wife was, was exhausted. But there was just constant, constant outward things to appease God for the purposes of righteousness. Prayer shawls, prayer pillows, prayer prayer hats, all of this, moving to the back of the airplane to, to pray because that's where they believed that they were closest to the holy of holies. All of these things were going on as outward actions of righteousness. The same can be said for these, these dogs, these evil workers, these false circumcision. They were all doing things from an outward basis to show that they were righteous. And here he says, he's going to give us three things here. So if you're a list writer, here are the three things that Paul now is going to lay out for those who are truly of the circumcision. All right, so uh, look at it. It says, for we, all right, so we believers, the church and Paul, uh, we believers... Uh, we are ones who worship in the spirit of God. So three signs that you are of the true circumcision. The first one is that you worship in the spirit of God. Well, what does that mean? All right, well, this takes us back to uh, the gospel of John. And in John, Jesus is meeting with a woman in they're talking about going up to the synagogue and worshiping at the synagogue. And Jesus says, a time will come 
when you will worship in spirit and in truth. And what Jesus was referring to was Jesus was referring to after his resurrection that you would worship in spirit and truth. Spirit and truth is all about inward change. It's all about worshiping inside, all right? So at the heart of the matter, it's all about the inward focus of a transformed heart and one that wants to give worship or give God his worth. All right, here's, here's the second thing that uh, uh, one of the true circumcision does is they give all glory to Christ. All right, they take no credit for what they are doing for the purposes of righteousness on their own shoulders, but they give all credit and glory to Jesus. Why? Because it's Jesus who went to the cross. It's Jesus who was sacrificed. It was Jesus who was buried. It was Jesus who rose again, defeating sin and death. So we are ones who uh, worship in spirit, so an inward transformation. It's all about what comes out of the heart not what we do in the outward actions, but it also is glorying and giving all the credit due to Jesus Christ for the work that he has done to defeat sin. And then finally, it is to put no confidence in the flesh. Those three things were our signs that we are of the true circumcision. Put no confidence in the flesh, which simply means this, that it's not giving your own abilities credit for what Jesus has done. It's putting no um, confidence in your earthly self. Uh, these, these things are, are huge because putting confidence in the flesh, this is what the world teaches. Uh, the world teaches you that your education and your skills and all the abilities you have are the reasons for your success. Uh, they are the reasons for the positions that you are in uh, today. And it's all about building yourself up so that you can have greater success within the world. And so this is uh, confidence in the flesh is where we get pride and arrogance, lifting ourselves up over Jesus. All right, look at verse 4, because Paul's now going to, to drop down his resume for us. All right, so Paul's going to give us uh, his life before Christ as an example. He says, although I myself have confidence, even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I, I far more uh, was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. 
Oh, imagine having a resume like this in the flesh. Let's, let's look at a little closer at what Paul is talking about here. So first he says, I might have confidence in the flesh. Do you know Paul was one as a Jewish man who was striving to be the best of the best in the world of the Jewish people. Uh, he had a greater knowledge of the law than, than many others. Uh, he followed the law to a T. Uh, to the point, he says, that even uh, he was circumcised on the eighth day to the nation of Israel. I want to look at the importance of that subject And so we need to go back into the Old Testament and see why Paul puts this as one of those things on his resume. And so let's look at uh, Genesis chapter 17. All right, in Genesis chapter 17, uh, we have this this guy by the name of Abraham, uh, whose name started out as Abram and was called uh, way back in Genesis chapter 12, Abram was called to leave the land of his own with the promise to uh, receive new land. This this unveiling of these promises to to Abraham uh, run across a number of chapters within the first few chapters of Genesis. Uh, God reveals his plan for Abraham as Abraham is obedient to the calling that he has for him. All right, so uh, in Genesis chapter 17, God is making a covenant with Abram. So look at the beginning of Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abraham, Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and will be with the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham." For I will make you the father of the multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make make nations of you. And kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants. And throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. So right here, just in these first seven verses, God is making an unbreakable covenant. This covenant that is being established by God is what we would call an unconditional covenant. There is nothing that Abraham has to do for God to fulfill this covenant. But the result of this is that Abraham would be obedient and has been obedient up until this point. So look what he says. He's promising him a king will be on the throne forever. Somebody will, he will be blessing them for a long time in uh, everlasting covenant to the descendants even after you. So the covenant will pass through the family. It says in verse 9, As, 
God said uh, further to Abraham, now as you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you through their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male uh, among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is brought, bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is brought with, bought with money shall be circumcised as well. Thus shall be my covenant in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Now look at the next part. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from the people he has broken covenant. So what we're seeing here in Genesis, as God makes this covenant with Abraham, the sign of the covenant that they are a part of God's people is circumcision. All men will be circumcised to show that they are a part of the covenant. This is an outward sign of being a part of God's family. And so when Paul says in Philippians that he took part in this practice of being circumcised on the eighth day, this was what God set out for all of the men, a part of Abram's family. All Jewish men would participate in this practice forever. Why? Because it's an everlasting covenant. This was the sign that would take place. Now, it's important to note that this sign, okay, this sign of circumcision that God had Abraham and all his servants and all his families to be a part of the covenant, take part in, did not consider Abraham to be righteous before God. This outward act did not make Abraham righteous before God. Are you ready for this? Are you ready? Before this covenant was even established, Abraham was considered righteous before God. Genesis chapter 15. So flip back to Genesis chapter 15. Verse 6 of Genesis chapter 15 then tells us that through all of the obedience and everything that Abraham has done up until this point, beginning in Genesis chapter 12, that Abraham believed that God would give a promised land and an heir and descendants more than he could ever count. And when Abraham believed that God was true to his word, look what it says in verse 6. Abraham believed in the Lord and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. So the actions of Abraham believing in God in his word was what considered him to be righteous. There's nothing in Genesis chapter 17 that says 
that that outward act of showing a part of the covenant actually proved him to be righteous. He was already righteous in God's eyes two chapters earlier. And so this is the point that Paul is going to come to. That Paul is going to pull through into Philippians here is that righteousness is not considered as an outward act. This is what Mark was talking about last week too. That our relationship in Jesus and then the outflowing of that is the work that we do for the Lord, but it's not for the purpose of being saved. So the three signs of the true circumcision are they worship in the spirit of God, they glory in Christ, they put no confidence in the flesh, and then Paul tells us all about what his life was like before. Look, circumcised on the eighth day, why? Because that's what the covenant told him to do, and to be a part of the covenant, all Jewish men were to take that on on the eighth day of the nation of Israel. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a part of that family. He was in, all in, as to the law. He knew the law like no other. Why do you think he was so good at going into synagogues when he went to places? It's because he so well knew the law, but he so now, now well knew the gospel of Jesus Christ that he could reason with those in the synagogue because he knew the law, and he could take them back to the law and show them the Messiah. This is all a part of Paul's history. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, uh, he, he was a Pharisee. Look, at he had great zealousness and desire. He was a persecutor of the church. Paul was there when Stephen was stoned. He was a part of that. He, he killed Christians for their belief because it came against the law. He wanted to do his job so well that he put Christians in jail. He persecuted the church. And he was to be found blameless when it came to the law. Oh, yes, I am so good that I can hold the law. You know, nobody could hold the law. But Paul, that was what he strived for, was to do the outward things. He strived to do those things that would be seen by everybody, that they could look at him and go, that person is righteous. But you see, there's a huge thing that's happening here in these verses. And the first is that, you know what, Paul never once had a true relationship. He knew God. But the only way to have a true relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. He had a zeal and he is a persecutor of the church. He did all of the outward things and he was found blameless in keeping the law. But... Look at verse 7. It's the same word in verse 7. Is in my Bible as your Bible? What's the word? But. I love contrasts in Scripture. He says, that's my resume as a Jewish man. But whatever these things were gained to me, those things I have counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Can you imagine working your whole life to to attain the righteousness before God, 
within the whole law, going, going to the points of putting Christians to death because they were going against the law, to study and work so hard to, to know the law in and out and be able to call people out on it, to, to consider himself to be righteous in all these outward actions. And then what he does is he takes that entire resume, and that word counted means to evaluate. It's, it's a term used the same in, in accounting. It's to take it all and evaluate it all through. And what he says is, I count it to be a loss. Everything that I strive for in my life as the Hebrew of Hebrews is a loss. It's not worth anything. It's rubbish. It's garbage in comparison to what I have in Christ. Uh, work hard, do all the outward things, look really good in front of other people, all this outward, but inward, something was missing. We all know what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus when the Spirit came to him in his presence and he said, why do you persecute my people? He fell on his knees and he went blind, being in the presence of the glory of God. And then his eyes were open, and he became so zealous for the gospel. Once he was killing all those Christians for the purpose of the law, and now he is so zealous for Christ that he writes the majority of the New Testament. And an, a great number of Christians can be accounted to the work of Paul. Look what he says in verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be a loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things and count them to be rubbish so that I may gain Christ. All right, so... Uh, let me just step out of Philippians for a minute because uh, note takers, uh, this is an opportunity where you can write, write in your Bible, you can write the number, okay, number one, two, three, four, five, write in the text of your Bible because Paul gives us five things that he thinks are way better than what he had as the Hebrew of Hebrews, and these things are so important for you and I because they are the challenge for us. This is where the rubber hits the road in application in this message this morning because this is what we should be looking for. Uh, more than I count, I evaluated everything in my life, everything in my life, and I counted it all to be a loss and the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Number one, all right? Everything considered a loss, but the number one thing that he found more worthy than all that he had before was knowing Christ. All right, so uh, we need to, we'll come back because there's 
a couple that are going to sound very familiar. To know him is going to be two things. It's going to be two things on our list. But there is a know him right here. And it's, watch what he says. To knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things and count them all as rubbish. And then the term of conclusion is so that I may gain Christ. So the first is to know Christ so that he may gain Christ. That's the first thing that we see there. And this knowing to gain Christ, we can see best experienced in John chapter 17. All right, so I want you to flip over to John chapter 17. Keep your finger in this passage because in John chapter 17, and I've brought you here already in this series, but John 17 is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It's not the favorite, but one of the favorites. And here's why. It is Jesus praying to God, having a conversation with the Father before he is arrested and he is taken to the cross. All right, John chapter 17, uh, verse 1. And listen to what Jesus says in his prayer. He says, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up to his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Uh, starting at John chapter 12, all the way up to John chapter 17, Jesus says, the hour is coming. All right, the hour is coming. And now he says, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Now, look what it says here. God... uh, And his son, look what it says that God gave his son. All right, in verse two. First, he gave him authority over all flesh. All right, so who has authority over all flesh? Jesus. Because Jesus has authority over all flesh, look what else Jesus is given authority to do. Because he has authority over all flesh, he has the authority to give eternal life. We know that eternal life is given through the work of the cross. Now, we're going to see in this prayer eternal life defined. All right, and that is in verse 3. This is eternal life. That they may what? Know. That they may know you. That's not all. That they may know you, the only true God... And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is the definition of eternal life. That you know God the Father sent Jesus the Son. And for the purpose of of death on the cross, when you know this, and when you know this, that is eternal life. Now look what Paul says back in Philippians chapter 2. I counted all things as a loss to be in view of the surpassing value of what? What's the word? Knowing. Knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered all things and count them but rubbish, 
all of this is around me is rubbish except knowing Jesus so that I might gain Jesus. You know what Paul is saying there? It's that I would truly know Jesus and therefore have eternal life. This is what Paul is saying is everything else that I strive for in this world is rubbish in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ and gaining him because that is eternal life. Uh, Paul considers everything else that he was doing in life garbage in comparison to receiving eternal life in Jesus. Hmm. Don't worry, we'll, we'll come to where this all uh, hits the road in our application, but let's look at the next one, okay? So the first is that he would know Christ for the purpose of gaining Christ, and number two is that he may be found in him. Uh, this is very similar to the number two of the true signs of circumcision. It is to glory in Christ and give him all the credit and that a faith is based not on works or outward actions, but solely based on the work of Jesus. To be found in him is to recognize that it is Jesus who does the work of salvation, that there is nothing that you and I can do to receive righteousness through our own works. Uh, here, here's a couple passages or books of the Bible that you could write down based on this subject. Are you ready? Romans, Galatians. Uh, go read them this week. <laughs> you will see very clearly that Paul, in both of those books, lays out that salvation comes by faith and not by works. Do you want to know uh, the example that he uses in Scripture, in Romans, and in Galatians? Abraham. Why? Because Abraham was considered righteous by believing in God and not by the acts and the works of circumcision. There was nothing outward about this. Let me give you a, a this day and age example of what it might be to be saved by faith and not by works. Uh, a comparison to this might be baptism. Uh, baptism doesn't save, but baptism is an outward work of showing an inward change. All right? When, when that tank is filled up and you put people into the tank and you dunk them down and you bring them up, they are identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not saving them. They've already made a profession of faith before they ever get into that water. So baptism doesn't save, but it is an outward act of an inward change. Uh, the same is said of what happened to Abraham back in Genesis 12, was there was an inward change because he believed in the word of God. There is no outward act of service that brings 
about salvation. And this is what Paul is saying, that it was more important than all of the outward acts that he did as the Hebrew of Hebrews was to be found in him and the work that he did on the cross. You know what's very difficult is sometimes we get caught in trying to do the works of Jesus for the purpose of salvation. It's not going to do it. It's not going to be the thing that transforms you and changes you. You can serve in this church all you want. You can do whatever you want, but that is not going to save you. You should be serving in this church because you've already had an inward change and now you're showing in an outward action that change in love for Jesus that you just want to serve him much like Paul. Uh, Paul was once zealous to kill the church and now he is zealous to build the church. Uh, Here's the third one. The third one sounds very familiar to the first one. All right, so number three, he says, uh, he goes, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, saved by faith, not by works. And then he says, that I may know him. All right, so that's the next one. So the first one was to be to know him, to gain him, which is eternal life. And then this one is to know him. So if you're a note writer, uh, write no in all caps. To know him. This is not just to know the elementary principles of the gospel. This is to be in relationship with him. To know him. Salvation is not knowing about Jesus. It is actually knowing him. Uh, That means uh, you are in a relationship with Jesus. Uh, This is different than knowing about the gospel. You know what? Even Satan knew the word of God. Even Satan quoted the word of God. There are people who may even be sitting in this church today that know the gospel, but don't know Jesus. There is a huge difference between the two. One is a relational aspect, and the other is knowing facts. It's knowing history. It's knowing what has been spoken from the pulpit for thousands of years. It's knowing what has been passed down from generation to generation, that Jesus died, and that he resurrected, and that he ascended to heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father. These are facts These are truths that we know, but do we know Jesus? Well, like any relationship, it takes work. And so how do you truly know Jesus? Well, one, you have to talk to him, right? Two, you have to study the word of God. 
If you truly want to know who Jesus is, you need to be in the word of God. If you want to build your relationship with Jesus, you need to talk to him. Do you know how he'll talk back to you? In the word of God. So you have to pull these two things together to really know him. And when you really know him, it begins to transform your life. Now, Paul's going to tell us two things that he really wants to know about Jesus. All right, here, here's the third thing, the fourth thing to, we need to add to our list. That I may know him and that I may know the power of his resurrection. Ah. <laughs> Man, we all know Jesus died on the cross. But do we know the power behind the resurrection? Do you know that Jesus died a physical death and that he is the only one to be resurrected from death to live forever. What kind of power does that take to make that happen? That is a power that we could never wrap our minds fully around to know that uh, Jesus, who, who came to earth, who died on the cross, by the great power of God the Father, was risen from the dead and defeated death. Paul wants to know that power. Paul wants to know that, that amazing power that brought about this change in bringing a dead man to life. He wants to know it. Deep in his heart. Doesn't want to know the facts. He wants to experience that power. Do you think he experienced that power when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and knocked him to, his, to, to the ground? <laughs> when, when he was asked, why are you persecuting me? And then all of a sudden, he turns around and he, from going blind to having sight and then going out by the power of the Holy Spirit to, to change the world for Jesus. That has to take an amazing transformation for that to happen. How do you go from killing Christians one day to the next day taking the message of Jesus that you were so against and giving it to people for the purpose of them knowing God the Father sent Jesus the Son to the earth, which in the equation equals eternal life. And this is the desire that Paul has. He, he's, he hasn't got there yet, as you'll hear about next week, but his desire is that he would know the power of the resurrection. Here's the final one that he really, really wants to know. And he wants to know about the fellowship of Jesus' 
sufferings. Being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Uh, Turn back with me into Philippians uh, chapter 1 before we pull this all together. Uh, In Philippians chapter 1, Paul um, was talking about uh, the statement that, you know, we put on t-shirts and we put on uh, wood boards and hang them in our houses. Verse 21 Uh, He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now look what he says starting at verse 18. We'll come through to verse 27 again. What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense, in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and provisions of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by, what's the word? By death. That Christ will be exalted whether I live or die. For me to live is Christ, is to die is gain. For if I to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, and I do not know what to choose. I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ for this very much better. Yet to remain on the flesh in the flesh is more necessary for you. Do you see Paul's desire in here? What does he really want? He wants to die and be with Jesus. But he knows to hang around will be more fruitful for the church because there's work to be done. Now, what Paul is saying here when he has this desire to know the fellowship of the sufferings um, being conformed unto his death is that Paul, again, is willing to experience and know what it was like to die for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he wants to share in what Jesus has already experienced. And through that experience, he is willing to die. And so Paul wants to know how Jesus comforted and was there with uh, other believers as they died after he died and ascended as 2 Corinthians tells us, Paul says that God is the comforter and knows the sufferings that we go through. Paul now says here that he wants to conform to Jesus just like Jesus died for the gospel. He's willing to die for the gospel in order that he may attain to the resurrection from the dead. For you and I, it is being able to to wrap our minds around what other believers are going through in the suffering of the gospel too. It's, It's something that can help us to comfort others as they suffer. But do we have the heart of Paul to be conformed to the sufferings of Jesus, to be like Jesus unto his death? Because look at the term of conclusion 
in verse 11 is that I want to experience the same things Jesus experienced. I want to be conformed into that. Why? So that I too may attain, may gain eternal life, resurrection from the dead. So what is Paul saying verse, through these 11 verses? All right, so uh, this is another example of things that can steal joy. So the first thing that can steal joy, and then we're going to come back to these five things, all right? Things can steal joy. Outward things, outward actions, anything that we do on the outside can steal away our joy. All right? So even if we are trying to attain by our actions and all that we do, things that we want to show ourselves to be as righteous or outward, uh, these things are hard to keep up with. They end up producing guilt and stealing away your joy. Do you want an example? Here's one. Bible reading plans. Has a Bible reading plan ever stolen your joy? What happens when you stop reading from December 13th to December 14th and then December 15th you're not in it? Do you start feeling guilty about not being able to complete that plan? These are outward things. These are outward desires. Yes, our whole heart and desire is to to know God better through those Bible reading plans, but I've found that Bible reading plans produce a lot of guilt in people's lives because they're outward actions that are, are being accomplished, and when you don't complete them day by day, you start to feel really guilty about it. There are other actions that we might do on the outside that steal our joy, but you see what Paul's focusing on here is where the true joy comes from. The true joy doesn't come from the outward things that we do. It's all about the inward position. It's all about being in our position in Jesus Christ. And that's why he walks us through and he makes us aware of all the things that were going on in his life pre-Jesus. Because all of these things he was attaining and he was doing all these outward actions for the purpose of producing righteousness, and then he counted it all a loss so that he could deeply know Jesus. Why? Because in deeply knowing Jesus is where peace, joy, and eternal life are found. It's not in the outward things. So now, here, here's a way to, to evaluate your own life. All right, so here's five ways to evaluate your own life. Are you ready? (laughs) You've already written them down. One is, do you truly know God to gain Christ? Or do you just know about him? Do you just know the facts about Jesus? Or do you have this desire to get to know him to gain Christ? eternal life. I want to take you uh, quickly to Revelation and uh, Revelation chapter 3. All right, so go back to, uh, to go forward to Revelation chapter 3. 
I want to take you to, to the first uh, few verses of Revelation chapter 3 in the church to Sardis. Uh, listen to what Jesus says to this church. Because uh, this is uh, completely applicable to what we're talking about today. To the angel of the church in Sardis, we write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Uh, let me quickly uh, explain to you what Jesus is telling them right here. I know your works. I know the things that you are doing. That you have a name and a reputation and a past that says, uh, by your works, you are saved. But he says here, the contrast, you are dead. And what he's referring to here is the fact that their deeds that they are accomplishing have, are not truly those of believers. They are just outward religious actions that are being done, words spoken, aisles walked, hands raised, but no life transformation. And he calls those who have seen no fruit, no, no life coming out of the deeds that they are doing, the deeds that are not saving them, he calls them dead. He says those who, who just live the outward life, those who try to do things for the purpose of salvation, that you're, you're dead. Why? Because it's only Jesus who gives life. It's not the actions that we do. Now look what he says in verse 2. He says, wake up. Strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. The deeds that John is writing about that Jesus has stated, these deeds that are not completed are twofold. One, this church, some of them were not saved. They did not have the Holy Spirit in their life. And we know that those who are saved are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Some of them were doing works in name, but were not saved. He called them dead. You can look up Ephesians 2, that before Christ we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, but God. Like Paul, all outward things to produce righteousness, but it wasn't truly Paul receiving righteousness until he was saved. You see what he says? He says, wake up and strengthen the things. I've not found your deeds complete. He calls them to, to salvation, to repent and to change. 
Look what he says if you don't wake up. Verse 3, remember what you received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what hour I will come to you. Uh, the call to repent, if you don't wake up, you won't know the time at which Jesus is coming. Did you know that God's word is filled with signs of the return of Jesus Christ? And if you know your Jesus, you will know the signs. You won't know the date, but you'll be able to recognize the times. So the first is, do we, do we know do we know Jesus for the purpose of gaining Christ? We can't be saved by our works and our outward actions. We can only be saved by Jesus. Okay, second is, do you, do you, do you desire to be found in him? Do you have a desire to, to be in relationship with him, to be found in him recognizing that it is Jesus and the work on the cross that gives you life? Uh, do you desire to deeply know him and to be in relationship with him? Uh, do you want to experience the power of the resurrection that Jesus had? And then finally, do you want to Join in the fellowship of the sufferings. Do you want to be conformed to his death? Here's why stuff can take away your joy. It's because it takes you off your focus. It takes you off your mission. It takes you off your desire to be with Christ. And so our hearts, we need to be transformed and refocused and, and, and brought into that nothing the world has to offer is going to be ever good enough in comparison to Jesus. Do you see what Paul is saying? Beware of those dogs, those evildoers, those people who, who solely want to see the outward actions and not what's going on in the heart. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the word that you have shown us. We pray that we would be people who desire relationship with you. That we would have an understanding that it is not by works that salvation comes. But it is by truly knowing you. Father, I pray over each and every person here this morning that you would speak to our hearts in areas where we get distracted, where we have uh, opportunities to have our joy stolen because we focus on the outward things or, or a presentation that uh, may be showing that our heart is where um, it is not. Lord, I pray that um, we would be people who have a great desire to know you to know the power of the resurrection and to, to join in partnership and understand the suffering that you went through to bring us life. And that, Father, we too would be people who would be willing to go to the point of death 
to further the gospel in this world. Lord, we pray that you would conform us and you would shape us to be more and more like you each and every day. That we would get rid of those external things that uh, we desire to do to, to pursue righteousness. And that we would solely focus on our relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to Unlocking the Truth, a podcast by Preset Ministries Canada. Be sure to visit our website, presetministries.ca, to find a Bible study class or workshop that will give you the tools to know God deeply and live differently.